brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. The Cooperative Republic of Guyana is a small country on the northeast coast of South America, once known as British Guyana because those people owned almost everything at one point. They became independent in 1966 and became a republic in 1970. The world's largest single-drop waterfall by water volume is in Guyana with a flow rate of 663 cubic meters per second. Jim Jones wanted to help people. He used religion as a way to bring people in and turn them to a life of activism. But soon, the power corrupted him, and when presented with the thought of his followers leaving him, he decided they'd be better off dead. This is Monsters. Some leading scientists say, we have to have euthanasia. Oh no. Oh no. Who's going to decide who and when a person's going to die. We must never allow that because this is the kind of thing that ushers in the terror of a Hitler's Germany. We must not allow these kind of things to enter our consciousness.
In the early 70s, a charismatic preacher took the stage in front of his congregation and told them that everybody was going to get a cup filled with fruit-flavored punch. He told everyone to drink it, and they did. They followed every command given to them by the preacher. They were loyal to a T. When everyone was finished, he told them that the liquid was poison and they were all going to die together as one. Some of the churchgoers screamed and cried, and others were silent. Then the preacher revealed that they hadn't drunk poison and he was only testing their loyalty. He wanted to see just how committed to the cause they were. He wanted to know just how compliant they would be. James Jones was born on May 13, 1931 in Crete, Indiana. His mother, Lynetta, didn't want children but likely used it as a method of winning over her disapproving in-laws. She would later tell people that she fell ill and had a fever vision that she was approaching the Egyptian River of Death. As she was about to cross, which would have killed her since it's the River of Death, the spirit of her mother appeared and told her that she couldn't die because she was meant to give birth to a child who would become a great man. Either her mother was way off, or more than likely, Lynette was full of shit. Jim's father, Jim Sr., was a World War I vet who worked on road crews but eventually got too sick to work. He suffered issues with his lungs due to gas attacks during the war. They relied on the generosity of his family and relocated to a small house in Lynn. Once Jim Jr. began school, Lynetta started working at a glass factory and Jim Sr. spent his days at home or down at the pool hall. While Jim was roaming the streets at six years old, waiting for his mother to get home from work, neighbors would take him in and feed him. One of them was Myrtle Kennedy, who would feed him pie and proselytize about her Nazarene religion. Jim Sr. and Lynetta were the only family in town that didn't attend church every Sunday, and Myrtle couldn't stand seeing a little boy grow up godless. She began reading the Bible to Jim and eventually started taking him to church on Sundays. Jim loved church and was soon quoting lengthy Bible passages. Kids that knew Jim said he became obsessed with religion and death. He would conduct funerals for dead animals in the area. One of the kids from the area said that he killed a cat with a knife and then had a funeral for it. One time, Jim led some neighbor kids into a building where a casket maker stored his caskets. Jim said he wanted to lie in one of the caskets and see what it was like to be dead. To Myrtle's dismay, Jim's fascination with religion wasn't limited to Nazarene. He began attending other churches in the area to see what they were like. He also started attending revivals where he listened to the preachers and learned the fine art of evangelical preaching. He realized that it would be the perfect opportunity to build his own following. Jim started practicing in the woods. He would stand on a tree stump and preach to an invisible crowd. He began telling the other kids that he had special powers from the Almighty and tried to prove it by jumping off the roof of a garage, intending to fly. He fell to the ground and broke his arm, but that didn't break his resolve. He continued claiming that he had special powers. When World War II began, the kids in town all began playing war, obviously as American soldiers who were defeating the Axis powers. Jim, on the other hand, seemed to focus his admiration on Adolf Hitler. Not his ideology, but the way he spoke to a crowd and the control he had over them. The way he could go on for hours captivating a crowd of adoring fans. Jim wanted this. He wanted to pull himself out of the poverty he lived in and become a beloved leader of millions. When Adolf Hitler committed suicide in 1945 as a means of evading capture, Jim took note. 
By the time Jim was in high school, all he talked about was religion and sex. Most of the kids, despite thinking he was odd, found his conversations interesting. He had a habit of arguing with teachers about details in their lessons. Though he never played sports himself, he did organize a baseball league and set up games with teams in other towns. It's said that he collected money from local businesses and set up a schedule all by himself. He acted as the coach of the baseball team in Lynn. The summer before Jim went into his senior year of high school, his mother left his father and they moved to Richmond, about 16 miles or 25 kilometers south of Lynn. Due to the separation and eventual divorce, the Jones family stopped helping support Lynetta financially. In order to help out, during his senior year, Jim took on a job as an orderly at a local hospital. It was at that job that he met a young woman named Marceline Baldwin. Marceline was a few years older than Jim and was in her final year of nursing school when she met him. He made sure to run into Marceline any time she was on break, so he had a chance to talk to her. Despite the three-and-a-half-year age difference, the couple began dating and would get married at a double wedding on June 12, 1949. Marceline's sister also got married at the ceremony. Their dad knows about efficiency. The time working at the hospital made Jim change his mind about becoming a preacher. He thought that becoming a doctor would afford him more opportunities to help people. So after he graduated from high school, he enrolled in Indiana State University in Bloomington. While at university, Jim was introduced to the ideas of socialism and communism. He had spent his whole life a vocal opponent of racism and saw communism as a way to make everyone equal. He started attending communist meetings in Indianapolis and brought Marceline with him. See, Jim's obsession was not about believing in God, but about amassing followers. He actually disliked most religions because they didn't follow the Bible that specifically said to feed the hungry and house the homeless. It said to sell your possessions and make men equal, but they didn't do that. Jim wanted to promote communism, but he needed someone to promote it too, so he used evangelical preaching as a way to gain followers. After a few years at college, Jim realized that his future was not in medicine. In 1952, he was hired as a student pastor for a small Methodist church. Through the early 50s, Jim began preaching at revivals and selling himself as a healer. He would walk around in the crowd ahead of time and eavesdrop on people's conversations. He had a remarkable memory and could call out people's names from the stage and announce their ailment. He would first just sell himself as something of a mind reader and tell people that they would get better, but soon he was claiming to actually heal people. He would even command people in wheelchairs to walk a few steps and they would. People with headaches and coughs would claim that their symptoms went away, which is likely due to the placebo effect. It wasn't until later that he would use a plant to make people believe that a woman was able to get up out of her wheelchair and dance around. Jim was ordained by the Independent Assemblies of God in 1956, and he started his first church, the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, in Indianapolis. He used influence from the black churches in the area and created a more lively experience at his church. The atmosphere and the message of integration attracted both white and black attendees, and after an endorsement from a popular minister and faith healer, his congregation soon grew to over a thousand people. Soon, the church's name was shortened to the People's Temple. Jim and Marceline adopted a number of non-white children. They adopted Agnes, who was part Native American in 1954. They adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne in 1959. 
Stephanie died in a car accident the same year. Also in 1959, Marceline gave birth to her and Jim's only biological child, Stefan. In 1961, they were the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana. They named him Jim Jr., though wouldn't he be Jim III? I guess Jim didn't recognize his own father. Jim felt like Indiana was too racist and he wouldn't be able to get his message out there. He decided to pack up his family, his church, and several of its members and move to more progressive California. He chose the town of Ukiah, about 115 miles or 185 kilometers north of San Francisco, because he read an article in Esquire magazine that listed the nine places in the world where you could survive a thermonuclear attack, and one of them was close to Ukiah. Except this isn't what he told the congregation. He told them that he had received a vision that a nuclear attack would destroy Indianapolis. This was actually based on a prediction made by another faith healer that also influenced another cult leader, Paul Schaefer, to move his cult to South America in the 70s as well. By 1965, it had only influenced Jim to move his church to California, but it did start him on the path to South America. Another Esquire article claimed that South America would be the safest place to flee in the event of nuclear war. Of course, this was during the Cold War, and the idea that the U.S. would go to nuclear war with the Soviet Union was at the forefront of every conversation. In California, Jim got a job as a teacher at an adult education school. He taught civics and American history and used this position as a place to spread his message of communism and recruit church members. It was in California where Jim began shifting the focus of church from religion to politics. The members started out tithing 20%, but soon, Jim convinced older members to sell their homes and give the proceeds along with their savings to him. He used the money to build a retirement community where they could live and all have their needs met. The communities were said to have been really nice, and the plan actually worked well. The church developed a farm and a commune where the members could live and work. They began handing over their entire paychecks and received an allowance along with any food, housing, and medical care they needed. A lot of other things started to change at the People's Temple after the move to California. Jim began having an affair with one of the members. He began using drugs and his paranoia skyrocketed. He began preaching that people were going to try to shut their church down. At first, it was the Nazis and fascists. Then, of course, it was the government. On top of the affair, he was also having sex with many of the members, men and women. Sexual favors were a good way to get power within the organization. By the early 70s, the People's Temple had opened churches in San Francisco and Los Angeles. The church had grown to have members in the thousands. Jim purchased buses and took his gospel on the road. It was at these road shows where Jim would take his faith healing up a notch. Here, he would plant people in the crowd who would pretend to have ailments that he could cure. He healed a woman's impaired vision and made a crippled woman walk, but those people were never really sick to begin with. They were people that worked for him back in California. Inside the church, things were becoming exceedingly abusive. If members didn't do as they were told, they would be publicly shamed. Once, when Jim heard that a member had questioned his actions, he poisoned the man's food so he became violently ill. Some members would get punished with physical beatings. Some of the members started questioning Jim. They found it hypocritical that he preached about equality, but all of the leaders within the church were white. Not only that, but new white members would rise in ranks quickly, where black members who had been there longer never gained any power. 
Jim also stepped up his rhetoric to keep members from leaving, claiming things like they would be reincarnated as the lowest form of life if they left the church. I'm sure I've said this before, but if you have to threaten your congregation with punishment in order to keep them there, that religion might not be so great. Some of the members decided it was time to leave the group. Not only did they want to leave, but they wanted people to know what was really going on. We'll be right back. Terry was away for the weekend for her daughter's wedding. The morning of the big day, she got a call from Simply Safe's 24-7 Professional Monitoring Center. They let her know that her system had detected water in her basement. In moments like this, time is critical because even an inch of flooding can cause more than $25,000 in damages. But thankfully, Simply Safe had detected the water just moments after the leak had started. After talking to Simply Safe, Terry called her neighbor who quickly turned the water to her home off before the flooding got bad. So the story has a happy ending. Terry enjoyed her daughter's wedding day, knowing she'd averted thousands of dollars in water damage. Protecting against floods is just one of the reasons more than 4 million people trust their home protection to Simply Safe. I use Simply Safe at my home and office to make sure my property is protected 24-7. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com forward slash thisismonsters. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com forward slash thisismonsters. In 1973, defectors were interviewed for an article that detailed the abuse that went on inside the church. Physical and sexual abuse as well as financial scams. Of course, the members claimed that the ex-members were all liars. They said that they were pedophiles and that they had embezzled money from the church. Even powerful politicians in California defended the church because they did do a lot of humanitarian work. Jim Jones did want to help people. He built senior centers and youth centers. The church was active in the civil rights movement. This kept people distracted by the good things the church was doing. Even so, Jim knew that a can of worms was being opened and that it was only a matter of time before people were looking more closely at the inner workings of the group. He needed somewhere for the group to flee to and be free of outside influence. Jim had traveled around South America in the 60s, initially looking at locations in Brazil. He never found exactly what he was looking for there, but soon he traveled through the small country of Guyana. It's the only country in South America where English is the official language, so it was perfect for the church and Jim liked their socialist government. By 1974, Jim leased a bunch of land in Guyana and claimed it would be the church's new promised land. It was officially named the People's Temple Agricultural Project, but was informally called Jonestown. It started as a jungle, but the land was cleared and they built dormitories, a medical clinic, a school, and a pavilion where they could hold events. They stocked non-perishable food like canned vegetables and evaporated milk. They had huge gardens where they grew the rest of their food. The first group of members arrived in Guyana in 1974 so they could continue building the commune while, at the same time, Jim went back to the U.S. to try to get his church in order. Over the next few years, more and more members were transferred to the commune in Guyana. One of the people who Jim sent to Guyana was six-year-old John Stowen. John's parents were listed as Timothy and Grace Stone on his birth certificate, but Jim had a sexual relationship with Grace and claimed that John was actually his son. Timothy and Grace had both signed affidavits naming Jim as the father of John when the boy was born. Grace soon started having doubts about Jim Jones and his church and began defying his claim that he was John's father. 
After numerous physical punishments for her behavior, she fled the group, with Timothy and John remaining members. When Timothy fled in June of 1977, Jim kept John in Jonestown. This development would turn into a contentious custody battle. While Jim was back in the U.S. in March of 1977, an article for New West magazine was scheduled to be published that described abuse claims from former members. As a courtesy, the editor called Jim the night before it was to be published and read him the article. Jim left the area and permanently relocated to Jonestown that night. The article wasn't even published when Jim fled. Jim used the custody battle with the Stowens to convince his followers that the government was going to come in and take John. This wasn't going to be a couple of people showing up to calmly take custody of a child. It was going to be a military raid where they would take children and arrest Jim. He started holding drills where everyone would meet in the pavilion and armed guards would surround them. Then he would tell the members that the commune was surrounded by agents who were trying to destroy them. They would pray, sing, and chant for hours or even days before the drill would be over. But Jim only told them that it was a drill afterwards. He kept them constantly on edge and in fear of their lives. Sounds like a real utopia. Jim was able to do this because he was their only source of information. Jim told his followers that the United States government had ordered all African Americans and Indian Americans to be rounded up and put into camps. He told them that the country had fallen to a fascist, racist regime and they were going to come to Guyana and stop them from spreading their message. The commune had a loudspeaker that played messages from Jim at all times. They were meant to keep the members scared. He talked about the jungle and how the snakes would kill you, crocodiles would swallow you up, and that you would sink into quicksand. He kept the members too scared to try to leave. As Jim's mental health deteriorated and his drug addiction took over, he became adamant that people were not allowed to leave him. Anyone leaving him was a traitor and they would be punished and forced to stay. By now, the Stowens had started a group called Concerned Relatives who were fighting for family members in Jonestown who were not being allowed to leave the commune. On April 11, 1978, the group distributed a packet to the People's Temple, members of the press, members of Congress, and to the State Department. The packet was titled Accusations of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones, and it included documents, letters, and affidavits that showed that Jim Jones was violating human rights laws as well as laws in the country of Guyana. They had a temple document that threatened mass suicide as well as affidavits from former members who verified the claims. Debbie Layton was one of the women who was sexually assaulted by Jim years before. When she didn't show interest in continuing a sexual relationship, he told the group that she had begged him for sex and humiliated her in front of everyone she knew. By the beginning of 1978, Debbie knew she had to get out of Jonestown if she wanted to live. She had no money, no passport, and didn't know anyone who could help her. Through a series of trips to Georgetown, she was able to contact the American consul, who issued her an emergency passport and got her a flight out of the country. Once back in the States, she went public with information about suicide drills, abuse, and that people weren't allowed to leave. She told the public that Jim would call everyone into the pavilion and they would all line up and get a cup of Flavor-Aid, which is basically a generic brand of Kool-Aid. Then they would all drink it as if it were poison. 
They were practicing for a time that Jim believed the U.S. government was going to raid their commune. As far as he was concerned, they would be there any day. Despite these suicide drills being reported, nobody took it seriously. Nobody thought that a large group of people would really commit suicide. By 1978, though, the leadership of this cult was very serious about carrying out a mass suicide. Except it wasn't going to be a mass suicide. It was going to be a mass murder-suicide. In letters written by the women who were Jim's highest-ranking leaders, they wrote about how people wouldn't just line up to die, so a group of them would have to be tricked into taking the poison. They knew ahead of time that some of their members wouldn't want to die, and they were planning out how they were going to kill them anyway. They obtained large quantities of cyanide and did the calculations on how much would need to be mixed into the Flavor-Aid. They tested their mixture on pigs. This was already worked out before the events of November 18, 1978. By that November, family members grew so concerned about the situation in Jonestown that they talked to Congressman Leo Ryan, who agreed to go to Guyana, visit the commune, and see if anyone was unhappy. The commune heard this news and did everything they could to keep everyone acting happy and healthy. The congressman arrived with a news crew and they toured the community. At first, everything seemed great. People were singing and dancing. Congressman Ryan asked some of the members if they were happy and they said yes. At some point, one of the members that wanted to leave passed a note to the news crew. The note said they needed help escaping Jonestown. Jim was asked about the note and he said that it was a lie and Jonestown was a great place. When the congressman asked if anyone wanted to leave, two families agreed to leave with him and the news crew. Despite Jim claiming that anyone was free to go, the rest of the members became violent. One member attacked the congressman with a knife, yelling that he was going to kill him. Fortunately, other members restrained the attacker and Congressman Ryan was able to get to the airstrip with the news crew and the defecting families. Not long after they arrived, another vehicle pulled up into the airstrip and opened fire on the group. Congressman Ryan, three members of the news crew, and one defector were killed before they could leave the country. Jim Jones was such a little, insecure boy that he decided that nobody was allowed to leave him, no matter the cost. Jim made an announcement for his followers to meet in the pavilion. He announced that the congressman was dead and claimed that the government would come and torture them all. He said they needed to leave and go to sleep. He claimed that he wanted to die and told his followers that without him, life wasn't worth living. Some of them didn't want to die and they didn't want the children to die either. I look at our babies and I think they deserve I, to live. I agree. You know? They des- but also they deserve what more they deserve peace. We all came here for peace. Yeah. And we've, have we had it? No. I tried to give it to you. I've laid down my life practically. I've practically died every day to give you peace. And you still not had any peace. You look better than I've seen you in a long while. But it's still not the kind of peace that I wanted to give you. But it wasn't a choice. Armed guards surrounded the pavilion. His followers would either drink the poison willingly or have it forced down their throat. They started injecting cyanide into the children's mouths. The mixture was strong enough that most of them died almost immediately. When the children were dead, the adults began drinking the poison either voluntarily or they were forced to. Take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. 
We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. When everyone else was gone, Jim's nurse, Annie Moore, shot him in the head before shooting herself. A total of 909 people died in Jonestown. A third of them were under the age of 18. Five people were shot and killed at the airstrip, and four died in a house owned by the People's Temple in Georgetown. Some leading scientists say we have to have euthanasia. Oh no. Oh no. Who's going to decide who and when a person's going to die? We must never allow that, because this is the kind of thing that ushers in the terror of a Hitler's Germany. We must not allow these kind of things to enter our consciousness. From a sermon given by Jim Jones in the early 70s, he said whatever he needed to say to gain loyal followers, but he couldn't handle anyone leaving him. He didn't believe any of the bullshit he preached. It was all to get people to adore him because he was fragile. He chose to be a monster instead of being alone. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hi everyone, this is Jillian with Court Junkie. Court Junkie is a true crime podcast that covers court cases and criminal trials using audio clips and interviews with people close to the cases. Court Junkie is available on Apple Podcasts and podcastone.com. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on, like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now CERTA, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. Thoga erid chansig poshtiam fluo oil agus a thoig dini fasta. Rotha jetak ave in a hushkinish kumkushik. Thogak poshti it a gavlin agus shachmlin a jerk dish in an an vaccine flu shrona oil serenashka. Is Balak Savalja Akas Efaktok at Thorn Sock and either Cushions, come badlish on Quidj Eladin Tyluk. Jane Quinnell at the Hook Dork in Ralta, no let the foot the care. Tell all a share foil like HSC Punk IE, Tulslash Flu, or I'm an Ox Nershervisha Slancha. 
This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.